Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 135 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hi, Adam. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I waited this time. You did wait this time. <laughs> and cut you off like the first time in five intros. I appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. What's up? Not much. I'm yeah. tired. I know. We're both tired today. It's the weather. It is. It's um, last time we talked, I think it was pouring rain. And then again, these last two days, we're recording this on a Tuesday, right? Yes, yeah, it's we're Tuesday. Tuesday. <laughs> More rain. So I'm not complaining, though, because it's not like 95 degrees and muggy, which is right to me the worst of the weathers. So agreed. It's like very it's like pre-fall outside. <laughs> kind of is so. it's a little bit. Um, what do we do today? What's this one? What's this all about? <laughs> what's what's the haps on today's episode? OK, so um. <laughs> We sort of alluded to this a little bit in our episode recap from ALA, but when we were in Chicago a couple weeks ago, we got to interview Colson Whitehead. We sure did. Who, for those who don't know, um, won the Pulitzer Prize this year for his novel, The Underground Railroad, and so we got to chat with him, thanks to our friends at Penguin Random House, um, and this is the interview today. Yeah, he... Not only did he win the National Book Award, or the Pulitzer Prize, he also won the National Book Award, the Carnegie Medal, and a few other things, I think, in my intro when we right. talked to him. I named a all lot. of them. All the awards. Yeah. I think is how we summed it up. All, all of them. <laughs> all of the awards and all of the lists. And, and it's very well things. deserved. So if you haven't read The Underground Railroad, I highly recommend it. Yeah. We both did the audiobook, which I enjoyed. Yeah, I also enjoyed the audiobook very... I can't... Off the top of my head, I can't remember the, the narrator, and so I apologize. She was good, though. But she's really, really good. Um, I'm always blown away from a narrator standpoint. It's incredible to me that you can have so many different uh, people that you're conveying and just with subtle differences in your voices, be able to keep them straight and then have the listeners know exactly who you're talking about. It's just... Agreed. Yeah, and she did a really good job of that. Um, If people want to get a hold of us, how can they do that? They can find us on Twitter at ProBookNerds, and they can email us at ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. Yes, they can. Um, anything else that you can think of? I feel like we should let people dive into this one. No, I'm good. Okay. All right. Me too. Well, we'll keep this introduction for once short and sweet, and I hope you guys all enjoy this interview with Colson Whitehead on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Adam and Jill again from Team Overdrive, and today it is our absolute pleasure to say we're joined by Colson Whitehead, author of The Underground Railroad, which won the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, the Carnegie Medal for Fiction, and was selected by both Oprah and President Obama for their respective book clubs, amongst many other incredible honors and awards. Colson, first off, congratulations. Hey, thank you. And thank you so much for joining us today. We very much appreciate it. No, sure. It's my pleasure. So can you start by giving our listeners an introduction to The Underground Railroad? Um, the book or? The book. 
You can do both if you would I mean, like. if you want. <laughs> yeah, yes. Well, you know, in, in real life, uh, the, the Underground Railroad was a network of people who helped slaves escape from the south to the north. Uh, you might uh, give them material help, like money, or hiding them in your wagon and driving them 100 miles and before you hand them off to someone else. And uh, uh, I guess the, the term came from a slave master was quite appalled when he woke up and found that the slave had disappeared and said, he was so surprised, he said, it's like she disappeared on an underground railroad. So that became the metaphor. And about 16 years ago, um, I came across a reference to it and thought, wouldn't it be weird if it, if it was a literal railroad beneath the earth? Uh, thousands of miles of track, and it started from there, that weird, exploring that kind of childish idea of uh, making the Underground Railroad into something real. I, the way that you put that, it, it makes me laugh, because it's something where when you're a kid, it makes all the sense in the world when you're, when you're first taught about the Underground Railroad, before a, a teacher or a parent says, well, not an actual railroad, all of us probably go to that place in your mind where you're like, so wait, there's a, there's a train underground that helps people get from the south to the, to the north. And it's, it made me laugh, but then you know, I've heard you say a few times, like that, that in and of itself isn't a story, but you came up with this alternate reality and these different histories from each state that, that the Korra travels to. So what went into changing the, the history of each of those states and how they are represented? Yeah, well, each... each uh... Once you get on the, on the railroad, of course, we're in the realm of fantasy because it's not real. And that allowed me to have a much bigger conversation with history um, through uh, providing alternative cultures and political economies for different states. So each time she crossed the border into South Carolina or North Carolina, she's in a new, a new state of American possibility. And, in, and that provides more of a story than just making the, the railroad real. And so, you know, I could have done a straightforward historical novel where a slave runs north. Uh, doing it this way with this fantastic structure allows me to move different historical events around and make a larger conversation about race and Americanness and uh, how the country came to be. I'm actually going to skip ahead a few questions because this is one that I actually want to know that you sort of touched on in your answer. Um, the book is part literary fiction, but then you do sort of have this fantastical element and it's so hard to kind of define the the book because it kind of does cross these genres is it fantasy is it magical realism is it alternative history like how how do you define sort of the genre of the book for me it's just a novel okay. you know class, classifying things as other people's jobs and preoccupation um, I don't see the, the difference between a historical novel and um, a novel of contemporary realism I don't see, you know, a real, in terms of high or low culture, I make a distinction between horror and literary fiction. For me, it's all just writing, and I write in different genres. And I realize that in bookstores, we need, like, mystery and historical fiction. <laughs> right. But um, that's not my job, okay. so. Yeah. And if I make it harder for some people, you know, I apologize. No, no, it's just... <laughs> no, it's okay, you just broke Joe's heart. No, 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 it's, it's not that. It's just, it, it's... Because you do use... I mean, there are, I guess, sort of elements a little bit I mean there's just it's it crosses so many genre boundaries it makes it and I'm a librarian so I do feel the need to kind of class sure no there is a need <laughs> however I don't feel like yeah. no that's perfectly acceptable it, so. no, it's perfectly would, acceptable no, there's definitely horror, definitely a horror elements actually this kind of plays yeah. into what I wanted to ask you next is 
the horror elements when I think of how you describe North Carolina. To me, North Carolina in this, the when Cora's in North Carolina, that to me is a horror story. I know we're getting a little inside baseball for people who may not have read the book, but she spends all this time hidden away in this like basically attic of an attic, this like tiny space. To me, that felt like a horror novel because of just like the claustrophobic, the claustrophobia and everything. But I have some thoughts personally on like I don't know how you can say which state is worse than another in this, but did you as you were writing this, what type of reality do you think is worse? Because you have, you know, North Carolina where it's just overt, they do not like black people, they they kill any black person that they see more or less. And then there's South Carolina where it seems like it's a wonderful place for them to be and it's very progressive, but then you find out that they're, you know, doing these procedures on them that they shouldn't be and they're doing this thing. So for you, what which version of that would be is worse? Yeah, I mean I, I don't I don't um I can't rate them. I don't see them that way. Uh, you know, I, I picked Cora, a female protagonist, because uh, there's a very famous slave narrative written by Harriet Jacobs, and she writes about how a when a slave girl becomes a slave woman, she enters into a new, more hellish kind of hell because she's supposed to have babies, because more babies means more children to pick cotton and more money for your master. Mm-hmm. And it's different than the male's experience. Is it worse? You know, I, I think you can't. I can't um, do the trauma Olympics. Sure. And so, yeah. you know, and so each arena, you know, has its own particular. Mm-hmm. Each arena, being each state, has its own particular um, terrible uh, dilemma that it's posing f- for Cora and, and, and the reader. And then, of course, uh, it being a novel of suspense uh, raises the stakes of how she escapes. And so, so for me, they're all just different and horrible in their own way. <laughs> That's you know. fair. Yeah. So not wanting to then play the, the trauma Olympics, but is there one that was harder to write because of all of that than another? Well, it's funny because North Carolina is very brutal. You know, the white supremacist state is making a, a final solution for the Negro problem, you know, borrowing the language of, of, of Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, but the task in that chapter that makes it hard isn't the brutality, just that she's in an attic for 40 pages. So how do you make it dramatic? How do you create action in this very closed space? And so, um, you know, and hopefully it does move along and you're not, you don't feel trapped in there with her, except in a kind of emotional way. Right. Um, the, the book is moving forward, even if she's static. And so, you know, um, in terms of emotionally, I, I didn't find writing different, this or that chapter hard, um, but each, you know, each chapter, each character provides its own uh, difficulties in terms of how to get on the page. Right. Did you ever feel like you had to step away when you were writing this? Because it is a novel, and you know you're creating this story. But the things that you write about that happen to Cora and, and all the, the the people in this book, they happened to people in our country not that long ago. So were there times when you kind of had to step back and just like take a deep breath, or were you able to separate yourself because, as a writer, this is what you do? Well, you know, the hard part was doing the research and coming to the material. To slavery as a grown-up, as opposed to like a kid watching Roots or being a 19-year-old studying in college, and um, realizing with adult eyes, having a new reckoning of how terrible it was. Imagining my children seeing me beaten or sold off, uh, vice versa. It just means something different to me now that I'm, I'm older and um, a little more mature. Um, but once I started writing, you know, the, the narrative voice and just the work itself felt very separate. And you know, I started at 10:30, knock off at three something, and 
uh, make dinner for my family, and I'm out of it. Um, but one thing, one thing did happen. Uh, when I was about 100 pages through, I decided to watch 12 Years a Slave. I hadn't watched it, a movie about a uh, black man who's abducted and sold as a slave. Um, and I could put it on the page every day, but seeing actors going through what I was putting on the page was too much. I had to turn it off and only got an hour into it. Um, so working every day wasn't, was, it felt very separate, but still I can't, even, I can't watch actors going through what I was putting on the page. What was your research? What was your research process like for this? Well, you know, I'm, I don't like leaving the house, so luckily everything's in the public domain when it comes to slave narratives. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so rereading famous slave narratives, like the ones by Frederick Douglass and Harriet Jacobs, who I mentioned earlier. Um, in the 1930s, it seems crazy, but it was a Great Depression, and the U.S. government paid writers to put them back to work, to pay them to interview former slaves, people who'd been you know, 10 or 11 at the time of, of slavery to catch their oral histories. And so that provides a lot of the um, sort of simple details that hopefully make it sound realistic. And then, um, uh, and th those are all digitized at the Library of Congress. We own them as taxpayers, that's great. And then, you know, and then, you know there's various um, little side passages of research I would do uh, in the book, there are runaway slave ads, and those are from uh, newspapers in North Carolina in the early part of the 19th century, and the U.S. Uh, and the University of North Carolina digitized them and made them into a database so I could find ones that particularly fit uh, my need. So. This is going to be a roundabout way to get to a question, but I promise it will come at the end. Um, there, this book to me... It, it feels, it reminded me of The Trial by Kafka because of a way, and again, stay with me, this is... No, I'm with you. Okay. Um, that book, it's, it's kind of famously the way he wrote it and it didn't get published after he passed away, and it said that you can take the first chapter and the last chapter, but then everything in the middle, you can just flip around and you can read it however way you want, but the, last, the first and last chapter are the ones that kind of create the story. And to me, with The Underground Railroad, it feels like different kind of short stories that you can kind of interchange, you could put in, like, obviously how she's traveling, you know, you know, you go from south to north, and you go from, you know, South Carolina to North Carolina, that makes sense, um, but I'm curious about your writing process, if you, if you wrote it, you know, knowing that you were going to go Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, the way that you did, or if you just knew that there were certain parts of the story that you wanted to tell, so you were writing, like, I think you could read about her in North Carolina, like those 40 pages. I think that could be a story. And then I think her experience in South Carolina could be a story. So I'm just curious about how you did it, how, when you were writing it, if that makes sense for that long, minute-long ramble I just did. Sure, no, I mean, I, I had the different state, you know, I had the idea sub, uh, 17 years ago, and um, had the different characters for the states all those years, so white supremacist state, black utopia state, uh, Tennessee is the wasteland, mm -hmm. and... Um, uh, so I had those, uh, the culture of each of those states down from a very early point. But there are biographical chapters in between each each uh, state chapter. And those I, you know, I guess the way I put it, I was having characters audition for their spots. And so, um, uh, should the Ridgeway chapter about the slave catcher go here or here or here? Uh, Mabel is our main character's mother. Should we uh, follow her story Right after um, 
Georgia, the first state, in the middle, towards the end? What's the most dramatic and thematic, uh, the effective place for it to go? And so, um, uh, so, so I, you know, I don't have a tight structure I'm, I'm adhering to. You have to be open to it. And the one sort of big place where um, uh, I was very loose was who to get those chapters and where would they go? I just have to say, no, I will not spoil anything, but where you put her mother's chapter, like I set the book down and I was just yeah. like, I was like, oh, I have my heart, I have my heart. you put it Agreed. in the exact right. I'm sure, sure that was a conversation that. between you and your editor, but yeah, you guys, uh, you nailed that one. Um, you've mentioned before that you don't necessarily concern yourself with sticking to the facts, but you'd rather stick to the truth. Can you expand? In this book, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it's not a historical novel. I'm not like in some club with Hilary Mantel and I'll get, you know, she's not going to walk up to me at the next meeting and choke me for like <laughs> screwing up. Um, so, you know, there's no rules I have sort of have to follow. And uh, like I said before, it could have been a straightforward novel about a slave running north, but by using this kind of scu- this structure we've been talking about, I can bring in Nazi Germany, I can bring in a historical, other a historical moments like um, eugenics experiments mm-hmm. in the late 19th century, forced sterilization uh, in American history, uh, to get at a larger truth. So it doesn't stick to how people actually ran north, but hopefully over the course of 300 pages it creates a portrait of a uh, a truthful portrait of America. I've seen several different people ask you if you felt kind of a connection to your past when you were writing this and all of the people who suffered through slavery. And I, To me, hearing people ask you that, I, I can't imagine putting that burden on yourself while writing it. Like, okay, I need to write a story that represents you know, thousands and thousands of people and families and generations. So instead of asking about your connection to those people whose stories you're conveying, I'm curious while you were writing it, what you um, wanted to accomplish what, with the book? Like maybe, what did you think, what did you hope people would think about while they were reading the book? Um, you know, I, I, I don't think about the reader uh, any, anymore. I think with my first book, uh, I thought I was writing for myself, but also to maybe like a geeky 16-year-old black guy who might pick it up and think, oh, I might want to write, or mm-hmm. here's someone who's talking about the world in a weird way that appeals to me. And then my first book came out and uh, that kid wasn't in the audience, and since then <laughs> I have a lot of different audiences for this or that book. Uh, my book about poker, my book about growing up in the 80s, uh, my zombie apocalypse book, and so I don't think about the audience anymore because it's always changing. Um, and with this book, I was really just trying to figure out something about the world for myself and how it works. And then, you know, with writing, if you do it, uh, in a way that other people can come along, then maybe they'll stick with you. So it's not a didactic book. I'm not trying to teach anything about history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really just trying to figure out a story that appeals to my sort of aesthetic needs at the moment. So this is sort of a multi-part question. Um, you, you talked about how you sort of first had the idea and, and the states outlined about 17 years ago. Mm-hmm. Have you been writing it this whole time or when did you start sort of really writing the book. Sure, no, no, yeah, I mean, um, I had the idea in the spring of 2000, and it seemed like a great premise with the railroad in different states. I knew if I did then I would screw it up. Like, I I didn't feel I had enough skill as a writer to pull it off, 
I didn't think I was mature enough to bring enough wisdom to the material. And so every couple of years when I finished the book, I would pull out my notes, my one page of notes, and think, am I ready? And the answer was always no. And finally, about 14 years ago, um, sorry, uh, 14 years later, three years ago, uh, I uh, was going to write a novel, and then the narrator was very similar to the narrator in my poker book, so why do it again? It seemed like a, a novel I could pull off. It was like a really corny novel about a Brooklyn writer. It was really you know, dumb. And it didn't seem like, uh, as, as, uh, I knew I could do it. I, I, knew, I knew I could do it. And, um, and so it just seemed like I've been putting it off for so long. This book about the railroad, you know, maybe the hard book is the one you should be working on. Not to sound too self-helpy, but it, it seemed I had been avoiding it for so long. Maybe it was time to do it. So that kind of goes to the sort of the second part of my question. Um, it's a very, you know, timely novel in, in what you are addressing. And, you know, you say bringing in Nazi Germany and, and these other things. It's just, it feels like this is the right time for this book. Does that make sense? And there's not a question. That's not a question. But From the outside, to me, you know, it seems sort of, uh, I mean, the historical I moment seems very separate, but, um, uh, but I guess, but, I guess other people think right. that it does seem timely. Okay. But if, if you're talking about race yes. and racism in 1850, you're talking about race and racism now because not right. how much changes. So. Okay. Um, something that you touched on, I this is a, and it's an amazing thought to me for you to have the ability to to think of an idea 17 years ago and say, I'm not ready to tell the story because we actually Joe and I uh, got to interview George Saunders and we were talking about Lincoln and the Bardot, which is an incredible book. And he said the exact same thing to us because that's his first full-length novel. And we asked him, like, you've been a writer for so long. You're one of time's, like, most important people in the world. What? Why didn't you write a whole... Why didn't... You, I, yeah, we were kind of, like, blamed. They're like, Mr. Saunders, why didn't you write a full-length? It felt very, like, horrible asking this, this man this. But he said the same thing. He's like, I didn't feel like I was ready. And then we asked him, like, well, what made it happen now? And he's like, I just felt like I was ready. So, But yeah. he said the same thing. He's like... I felt like I should write the hard story mm -hmm. as opposed to just putting it off. But that does sure, take, yeah. that takes an incredible amount of self-awareness to just say, this is a great idea, <laughs> not right now, that's impressive. Well, I think, you know, um, you know each, each new project should make you fearful, you know, because if it's mm -hmm. easy, it's probably not, not worth doing, and the, you know, the difficulty makes it into a worthy thing to spend your time on for a year, year or two years. But then, yeah, I mean, I think um, I've had various ideas and I, I stick with them. You know, some I put off and then uh, when I do have time to work on them five years later, they're not interesting, but the story stayed with me. So that, so that in itself, you know, speaks to uh, the fact that it's something worth pursuing, the fact that I haven't outgrown it and um, it still seems intriguing in this very tantalizing way. Yeah. Are you working on anything right now? Um, well, I'm traveling, you know, so much. You know, sure. the, the book is uh, usually my books are translated reliably into like four or five Western Europe lang languages, and now this one is being translated into forty languages. Wow! Uh, <laughs> so forty different publications, and right. you know, sometimes they bring me along, sometimes they don't, and then I'm doing a lot of lectures and college visits. So, uh, so I'm not getting a lot of work so done. You're not getting a lot of I have work. Uh, a, a, it's going to be a short novel. I have like thirty-three pages. Mm -hmm. If I have 35 in two weeks, that's cool. <laughs> 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 if I end the summer, if I had 50, 
That'd be nice, you know, so. That is entirely fair. (laughs) It adds up, it adds up eventually. All right, there's something I need to ask you about, and I was very, very proud of myself for this question. And then somebody actually, I think, tweeted at you like a few days ago. I was very irritated. But in your acknowledgments, you thank David Bowie and Prince. And I love that so, so much. So first off, do you really listen to Purple Rain every time you're writing the last few pages of a book? Uh, Purple Rain and Daydream Nation by uh, Sonic Youth, yeah. uh, those two records. Yeah, I mean, um, I've listened to those records for over 30 years, and mm-hmm. do, I, did home, I did homework to them. I've written books, I did journalism to them, and uh, now I write books to them. And so, with my first book, I, I put those two records on as victory music. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I've not been hit, to, hit by a bus, I made it to the last page, <laughs> and uh, so it reminds me, you know, um, you know, for me, music is very important. I, I've always had it in the background, and in the age of iTunes, I just have like a 3,000 song playlist, and it mm-hmm. goes from it goes from Prince to The Clash, to David Bowie, to um, Daft Punk, mm-hmm. and um, some people listen to classical, some people have headphones on, I have the songs I like, and they keep yeah. me company. Um, two things. One, I this is apropos of nothing, but I, when Prince passed away, um, Bomani Jones actually wrote, who's really well known for being on ESPN and all over the place, he wrote a story about Prince, and he said that there was, like, in the early, early 80s, uh, David Bowie had, there was an interview with David Bowie, and I don't know if it was MTV, whoever it was, but they're like, we want to ask you who you think the best of, of all these different mu- instruments are, and like, he's like, yeah, absolutely. So like, who do you think is the best drummer of all time? He's like, Prince. He's like, who do you think is the best bass player of all time? He's like, Prince. And he's like, he just kept doing it. And, there it and like, the guy just looks at him and David Bowie, who himself, incredible artist, just like, until Prince stops making music, the answer is Prince for everything. And this just made me laugh a lot. Um, you, said, you talked about having all these different music. We actually spoke with an author who, she plays specific music for specific books that she's writing. Um, you have your last few pages as like a celebration, and you mentioned having this three thousand, all these different music, but... Do you find yourself listening to specific music when you're doing specific parts of the book? No, I mean, that's, you know, it takes too much. That's too much ritual. <laughs> it's too much ritual. But, um, you know, the start of the day, something very loud and fast, like Underworld, mm-hmm. or some garage rock, um, some punk, that as the coffee's kicking in and yeah. driving in, it's very helpful. <laughs> sounds like it's a little bit ritualistic, but yeah, maybe not a little bit ritualistic. Way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so towards the end of our podcast, we do um, what we call the Nerd Nine. We like alliteration around here. So there's nine lighthearted questions, nothing too crazy. Not that anything else we've asked you is super heavy, I don't think. But So the first one is, what's the last book that you finished reading? Uh, the Rise and Fall of Dodo, which I finished this morning. Uh, Neil Stevenson, with a co-writer whose name I, I can't remember. And it's a time travel, a madcap time travel fable. It just came out this week. Oh, that sounds good. Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? It's always just my uh, um, my couch. Mm. Yeah. Uh, do you have what you would consider a guilty pleasure? I always tell people mine's like my Instagram is all my dogs, like wait, like an annoying amount of pictures of my dogs. Uh, not guilty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there are things like Twitter, which I know are you know sort of time wasters, mm-hmm. and uh, you know following news like what did. Trump do now? What did Trump do now? What did Trump do now? Yeah. You, can, you can spend all day. I, I <laughs> following, following shenanigans. Yeah. I had so. to take. I had to turn off the notifications on my news applications because every morning I wake up and be like, all right, 
what's going on now? It's like I literally yeah. walked through the first thing I would see. Um, are you a coffee person or a tea person? Coffee. You know, my, my wife switched to tea a few months ago. I was like, I'll switch to tea. Mm-hmm. And then, like, I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with coffee. <laughs> uh, cats or dogs? Uh, I like dogs. I've only, I've only had cats, so okay. cats. Uh, if you could travel, you've been traveling. I feel guilty asking this question because you've been all over the place. Now you probably don't want to travel, but if there is, where is, is there one place you want to go that you have not yet been to? Uh, Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure I like the food, and everyone says it's really Absolutely. chill. Yeah. Seems like it's very humid. I like yeah. that. <laughs> Speaking of food, do you have a favorite food? Uh, a variety of things, um, but steak is always. Mm-hmm. Nice strip steak. Yeah. And then uh, if you could have dinner with one person, alive or dead, who would you pick? Dan O'Bannon, the screenwriter of Alien. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. And uh, Return of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> that's a good one? That's a really good one. I like that. Uh, before we ask our last question, we should, being that we're at a library conference, we should probably ask you if you have any thoughts on, on libraries and their importance and all that, all that good stuff. We're also a library company, so we love hearing good things about this. Right, and, you know... Um, Occasionally, a variation of that is like, why are libraries important? And right. You can't really ask a writer that. It's like sure. saying, like, yeah. you know, like, you know, why is air important? Because <laughs> we, need, we need it to live. Um, but of course, uh, you know, whether it was when I was like a kid going to the Schomburg, the black library in Harlem for the first time, and, you know, being surrounded by books of uh, black and brown people, or or doing research for the intuitions, my first book, and coming across promo pamphlets from the Otis Elevator Company in 1950, uh, and some there's some marketing speak in, in my book. Uh, now that I am writing, you know, you find the most unlikeliest things, and just around the corner in the stacks, you'll find uh, the book you always seem to need. So, it's really well put. It is. Um, you said you don't write for readers, which is entirely fair, but what do you hope readers take away from reading The Underground Railroad? Um, yeah, yeah, I don't have any particular hopes for them. However, if, uh, you know, the book's been out for a while, and I've talked to people who've read it, and if it does, you know, send people to uh, look up this or that historical episode that's alluded to in the text, something they may have heard about before but didn't know much about or it's new to them and it allows them to have a different relationship to American history. That seems fine. Okay. Well, Colson, it was an absolute pleasure. We sincerely appreciate it. The book is, of course, incredible, but thank you so much for your time. Thank Thank you, guys. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.